the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. It is a privilege and honor to welcome back to the show one of my best professors in graduate school, a man we have spoken about in the previous hour over the story we've been speaking about over the past several days with regard to the new curriculum that was just approved in Florida and uh, the vice president's and much of the media's slander against it. William B. Allen, Professor Allen. Dr. Allen is Dean Emeritus and Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the James Madison College at Michigan State University. He is the uh, author of several books, including the editor most recently of The State of Black America. He is responsible for reviving single-handedly the serious study of the political wisdom and philosophy of George Washington. Really a great honor to welcome you back, my old friend and teacher, Ms. Dr. Allen. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to join you again, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm not quite sure where to start here. There is so much to say. Perhaps we'll just go with the vice president's own language that middle, middle school students by in Florida are now to be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. Well, you wrote that curriculum, Dr. Allen. What say you to the vice president? Well, before I speak to her, let me just be clear that I'm part of a work group, and nobody's the author. This okay, the last fair enough. Consensual, consensual process. Fair enough. I will stand behind the outcome. Okay. The vice president, I say, has spoken without reading. At least initially, therefore her statement was false. For the mere grammar of the sentence to which she refers reduced her. It shows that the document introduces school children to the idea that people held to slavery possessed, brought with them, acquired skills from which they personally benefited. No one anywhere suggested that they benefited from slavery. This whole idea that somehow we have concocted a revival of the positive good school of slavery. It's so utterly absurd that it hardly bears comment. And as I've said to people, you don't need rhetoric to counter the rhetoric from the vice president. You only need grammar. The grammar proves that she spoke falsely, at least the first time. Because, you know, when you say a false thing once, it's just false. When you say it twice, it becomes a lie. Dr. Allen, you put a lot in there. There's a lot in what you just said. Let's stick for just a moment on the subtle point you're making about the positive view of slavery. The positive view of slavery is such an interesting point because this is from a movement on the left that Vice President Harris supports. You see it in the 1619 effort. This is a movement that believes the American founding supported slavery, which is to say it's a movement that um, found its culmination in the Confederate States of America, in Roger Taney's view of American America's founding, not the Lincoln view, not the Frederick 
Douglas view, not the Union view. Their view of America is, in fact, the the, the view um, of the Confederacy that lost. That's what's so odd here, and I think that's what you're implying or stating very directly when you say this is really coming from a positive, good view of slavery. Am I am I hitting it right? Well, you are. They're accusing us of reviving it, but they are actually the carriers right, of it. Right. The baby progressives have embraced Woodrow Wilson's view of the birth of the nation. Right. And therefore, they are the ones who actually bring forward Calhoun, Taney, and Wilson. Mm-hmm. What we've done in the curriculum is quite the opposite. We've insisted on telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and making the stories of the people who live the histories be the foundation, the substance of the history taught. Let people tell their own stories. And don't let interpretation get in the way. In fact, the first condition to interpretation is to uh, demonstrate that the interpreter understands the story of the people who lived the history the way the people who lived it understood that history. And that's what the school children are being asked to do. There is something to me dehumanizing about the experience. I'm speaking del- Diffidently, deliberately here, Doctor. There's something dehumanizing, it seems to me, by the cast in which Kamala Harris and the media are putting this, because it want to takes out any of the narrative of what people did to survive slavery and in their survival and experience of slavery. It seems to dehumanize any of their, shall we say, self-worth or attempts at self-improvement or just improvement in dire and extreme circumstances. Am I... You have gotten it exactly. Okay. You nailed it. You get an A+. Plus. Okay. <laughs> We're going to have to <laughs> go back, redo the grades you gave me originally. <laughs> All right. There we go. There we go. As I've said to people, look, uh, Booker T. Washington titled his autobiography Up From Slavery. Yeah. He did not entitle it Down In Slavery. Right. And these people want to erase the title he gave. Yeah. They don't want him to tell his own story. They want to tell a different story, a narrative that fits their agenda for today. But it's false, and it's untrue to the stories of the people who lived through these times, including my own forebears. And I say nothing is more important than to present the stories that people themselves told from being erased. When I listen to you and I read what you have written and said about the slave um, experience from your studies of it and your undertaking of the study of it, I think about perhaps— a, a slightly adjacent aspect of it. When I read the standards, uh, when I read the sentence that Kamala Harris was playing off of, instruction includes how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. My mind went to literacy, quite frankly. It went to Frederick Douglass's initiative uh, to teach reading. It went to um, uh, something you don't hear much about anymore. I use it often. Uh, tell me if I shouldn't, but this old notion of each one teach one where there was this obligation once you became literate to teach another person <clears throat> in, the, um, in the slave in the, uh, under the grip of, in the grip of slavery to become literate as well. That's kind of where my mind went, and I saw nothing yeah. nefarious about it whatsoever. Not only that, but if you remember so very well, the story of Frederick Douglass yeah. begins with the mistress of his slave master yeah. introducing him to reading. Yeah. Now, she was quickly shut down by the slave master, but she had pulled the curtain back just enough to allow a small beam of light to shine into his soul. And he took that beam of light 
and turned it into a flame of bursting illumination to his personal benefit and the benefit of his country. And that is an apt description of what we have said in the curriculum standards. That's Douglas's own story. He published it. Who would erase that and why? Maybe that is the question of most relevance, actually. Who would erase that and why? There has been a left-wing attempt from where I sit and see see it to erase the, 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 the story of Frederick Douglass, the history of Frederick Douglass, to excise certain of his speeches, to have him stand for things he didn't stand for. This is a man who called the Constitution a glorious liberty document. That is not, again, that is not the Calhounite, uh, uh, Tawnyite view of American history that Kamala Harris wants people to believe this country is about. That's exactly right. And in fact, I think tell you there was an occasion in 1893 during the Columbian Exposition in Chicago <clears throat> from which American blacks were excluded. And Douglas himself only got to get in by being appointed as the ambassador from Haiti. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so he was admitted. But Douglas and Ida B. Wells, two icons, mm-hmm. wrote an essay called The Reasons Why, mm. explaining their protest of the exclusion of American blacks. So they did this. In the context of exclusion and in the context of thousands of lynchings taking place at the time, and they were protesting all those things, not just the horrors of slavery before, but the repressive conditions then in 1893. But they said this, and this is critical. They said, look, the tremendous accomplishment post-slavery of American blacks ought to be celebrated. And they ought to be celebrated not just because they're the accomplishments of American blacks, but because they're the accomplishments of the American principle. There you go. When you erase the story of black accomplishment in America, you are erasing America's story. Yeah, that's right. That's what's going on. That's the intellectual and academic crime that they would wage against our students. If I could, can I keep you one more segment? I have to take a commercial break. I would like to talk a little bit about race and the education wars with you if you do have a little more time, Professor Allen. Thank you. William Allen is my guest, W.B. Allen. His most uh, recent book is The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. And uh, he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. William B. Allen is, among other things, Dean Emeritus and Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, James Madison College, Michigan State University, former chairman of the Civil Rights Commission, former professor at uh, Claremont Graduate School and Harvey Mudd, where he was my teacher, still is my teacher, and he was part of the committee that helped uh, oversee and put together the education standards in Florida that have been the subject of so much controversy. One last point on that, uh, on that, uh, on the Kamala Harris criticism, if I might, uh, Professor Allen, because I was thinking about that one line that they seem to have seized on. Again, instruction includes how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. What the left has done with this, what the media and the vice president have done with this, it seems to me is somewhat would would he somewhat analogous to talking about the concentration camp experiences during World War II and where you might talk about how perhaps some of the some of the imprisoned might have saved a little bit of food for some of the others that were deprived of food and helped them out and maybe fed those in those uh, in those in those conditions and saying 
that to teach that would be to show how concentration camps benefited Jews. Wouldn't it be somewhat analogous to that? Isn't that the vicious lie that's taking place here? Yes, of course, that's the lie, and, and it's so easy in so many ways to show metaphorically why it's a lie. I'd use the example of people surviving in Avalon. Uh-huh. And, and that means they had adaptive skills that enabled yep. them to survive. Yes. And when they come out, they don't turn back and say, thank God for the Avalon. Right, right. They say, thank God for the talents he gave me. Right, <laughs> right, right. And, and all, all people who had suffered grief, great and deep grief, Sometimes it overwhelms them, and they never recover. Yeah. But some people recover with greater strength. Yeah. They don't look back and say, thanks for the loss. Right. <laughs> but right. they take pride in the strength. And, and so, yes, as you said earlier, the whole thing is dehumanizing. Yeah. It depreciates the people who lived in slavery, their value as human beings. And, and I think there's an irony here that I hope you and your audience will appreciate. Because these are the folks who want to say, as I say, they're baby progressives following Woodrow Wilson mm-hmm. and Woodrow Wilson's idea of the birth of a nation. Yeah. They want to say the nation was born in right. slavery, grew in slavery, and remains in slavery. There it is. There it is. So they, want, they don't want people to know that they have resources of industry, resilience, strength. They, they want them to think that they're always dependent and oppressed. Right. Right. That's what's going on. Not capable of summoning their own martial virtues, not capable of summoning help among and between themselves, always dependent on something else or someone else, yes? Right. That's it, exactly. So, the curious thing that some in the audience might be thinking, I, I, I end up having to talk or wanting to talk a lot about the racial issues that have been foisted upon us, but that's the question I have for you. Also, Dr. Allen, which is, isn't it odd in 2023 to be so seeped and soaked in these kinds of discussions? There's something odd about it. And I don't know if, if you agree or not, but it just seems we should be way beyond these fights at this point, way beyond these headlines, way beyond these kind of race-baiting uh, political arguments. And yet, we are not. It seems wounds that have been well on their way to closing have been reopened again. And I don't know if it started in politics or if it started in education or if there's a bloody crossroads where the twain meet. I wonder if you might just say a few words about any thoughts you have about any of that. Well, I agree with you. It's almost depressingly the case that we find ourselves in a state of mordant uh, and, and even well, I don't even know what word to use other than depressing yeah. obsession with the question of race today. But we also know how we got there, so we shouldn't be surprised. We know that we got there, of course, through the cultivation of a sense of victim. And that we spread that through the whole culture. It ended up not being confined to black people where it began, but it's been spread throughout the entire culture. Everybody wants to line up and to claim the status of a victim. And we can see how that process emerged in the 1960s when we moved from judging people by the content of our character to beginning to make arguments that there was no hope of improvement unless people who had previously been victimized could be rescued by those who had victimized them. And it is that odd formulation that came to the fore, at least by 1968, 
that has led us in the pathway of accentuating differences because we've turned victimhood into a palm leaf, the thing that you hold on to in order to claim whatever prizes you think the society has to offer. So now race is more salient. Now gender is more salient. Now even gender oddity is salient. And it goes on and on. It's al- yeah, it's almost as if the more progress society makes, the more salient those problems must needs become, yes? That's the case if indeed you're cultivating victimhood, okay. which means dependency. And, and we can see how the dependency emerged over the course of a long period of time, beginning with the very reaction to Reconstruction in the aftermath of the Civil War. Mm. There was a response, a counter-response to Reconstruction, which I call counter-reconstruction. And that counter-reconstruction is based on a simple premise. Namely, first of all, that the freed people were dependent war. They were not mature human beings. And as dependent wars, they had to be taken care of. And then we slowly and gradually, as we matured the welfare state, expanded that conception to begin to take in almost everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's where we are now. We treat citizens as dependent wards rather than as self-governing acts. And I suppose there's a political movement that relies upon that sort of thing, and that's why this is foisted on us the way it is. Because it right. seems to me most people don't want this. It seems to me. I could be wrong. I, I would say it runs against the human instinct, yeah. but I would also point out to you that human beings are vulnerable to being seduced by false allure. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what we're witnessing. Uh, the false allure Dr. William B. Allen, I know how busy your last several days have been. It means a ton to me and the audience. You would join us. Your uh, scholarship uh, speaks for itself, and we're delighted to hear you speaking with us this afternoon. Stay at it, and thank you, dear sir and friend. You're very welcome. I was delighted to be able to join you. And one final word, if I may. You may. People can understand this is not a Florida question. It's a national question. Well put. It's good that this response has happened because it reminds us it is a national question. Absolutely right. Thank you, sir. William Allen, his most recent uh, book, uh, The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. But read him on Washington. Read him on Fisher Ames. Read him on anything you can. I'm Seth Liebson, and we'll be right back. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems and forcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter, from draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, which may have led to a Biden presidency. Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, You'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power. And their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency used to store wealth throughout history. And thousands of my listeners here, you know and have trusted the veterans at 
Midas Gold Group as I have. They're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Give the Midas Gold Group a call at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or check them out online at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Isn't he a gift? Professors like that. Professors like Bill Allen, you know? My, My greatest lament about what passes for higher education today is we just don't make them like that anymore. We don't make these broad-minded, well-educated across many spectrums of intellectual pursuits anymore. Increasingly, academic pursuits are about narrower and narrower and smaller and smaller areas of expertise. And you end up, you know, obviously missing out on kinds of scholarship that, you know, broadened the mind, helped arrange what Alan Bloom once called the furniture of the mind. It's just, it's just a sad fall. You know, it's just a sad fall. But that's, that's what our education system has groomed and grown. And uh, it's unfortunate. But when you find, I always advise students, when you find a good teacher, there are plenty still. When you find them, they're just rarer. When you find them, hold on to them. And hold on to them for the rest of your life. You know, you may only be with them one year in elementary or high school. You may only be with them with, for one semester or even um, at most maybe four years in college if you're fortunate enough to be able to find one that you want to do a lot of study with. But when you graduate, either beyond that year or beyond that semester or beyond that four-year or graduate degree, stay in touch. Hold on. Hold on to them. I... um. I've tried to do that with several of my former professors, and I'm richer for it. You know, great professors are always teaching. You know, they're always teaching, and it's not just in the classroom. And um, it's important for them, too. It's important for them because they have something to teach. They have something to profess. And um, that's, anyway, just a small piece of advice. Take it for what it's worth. I was... I I guess that is the privilege I grew up with. If we're all supposed to confess our privilege, I was privileged with great teachers. That was the privilege I grew up with. What does Vivek Ramaswamy say? The privilege he grew up with was two parents. I think that's how he puts it. Um, It shouldn't be considered a privilege to have two parents. It shouldn't be considered a privilege to have great teachers. Increasingly, that's the society we're making. Again, I think we're lesser for it. Used to be the default. Used to be the default. Anyway, um, Joe Biden, getting better or getting worse? You tell me. Here's one of his statements from the podium today. And there's still, we're still feeling the profound loss of the pandemic, as I mentioned, of over 100 people dead. That's 100 empty chairs around the kitchen table. He loves that kitchen table thing. But over 100 people died. He said it twice. Over 100 people died from COVID. Well, it's not inaccurate in its own way. Over 100 people did die. Over 1,000 people did. Over 10,000 people did. Over how did he? How did he get through the debate with Donald Trump, saying someone with this many deaths on his hands is not qualified to be president when that number was over 100 at the time? And yet more died under Joe Biden's watch. 
he's daily disqualifying himself from not just the presidency, not just the presidency, which is the highest office in the land, of course, but maybe the most important office in the world. He's not daily disqualifying disqualifying himself from that. He's disqualifying himself from talking about any subject of any heft, weight, or seriousness whatsoever. I'm Seth, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Joe Biden twice saying over 100 people died from COVID. That's 100, I think he said less, 100 fewer people at around those breakfast tables. How big is your house? Well, I, well, I, he used to do, I, I take your point. <laughs> I don't have 100 chairs I, at my no, breakfast No, I take table. your point, but... <laughs> But that was his talking. He lo- he he just he has these ruts of thinking that he stays in, and he was talking. You know, he was trying to dramatize as if it needed dramatic dr- dr- as if it needed dramatizing. He tried to dramatize the toll of COVID so often during the campaign, and he would talk about think about all those empty chairs at the breakfast tables, one less person, one less grandma and grandpa at the breakfast table or at the dinner table. And um, it was an odd thing because he just said it so often as if he had felt he seized on something meaningful. But now he's just um, becoming a ridicule of himself when he talks like this and twice saying in two sentences over 100 people died. But that wasn't perhaps his worst statement today. That probably wasn't his worst demonstration of... uh, Mental incontinence. Listen to this. If you could do anything at all, Joe, what would you do? I said I'd cure cancer. They looked at me. Oops. Sorry. I lost. Because no one thinks we can. That's why. And we can. We ended cancer as we know it. We ended cancer as we know it. If you could do anything at all, Joe, what would you do? I said I'd cure cancer. They looked at me like, why cancer? Because no one thinks we can. That's why. And we can. We ended cancer as we know it. We ended cancer as we know it. This is all on the same day. How much longer can this go on? How much longer can this go on? The question is going to become pretty soon how much longer people will allow him to go in front of a microphone. And it's going to be odd. Because we now have all these stories that came out of the last few weeks about his temper. And, you know, when you enter into these states, your temper becomes uh, worse. Your temper becomes, uh, well, more intemperate, more mercurial. And he's going to, you know, fight to be in front of a microphone. He probably does so now. You remember who was the interview with? So with MSNBC, it was a sit-down interview about uh, a month ago where he was um, uh, Rule, whatever Rule's, Stephanie Rule, is it Stephanie? Stephanie Rule was interviewing him and asked him a question, uh, a pretty a pretty softball question. It was MSNBC after all. It was, I think, the last question. And before he could answer it, his aide was saying, no, we've got to end it right there. That's enough. And he had to shush the aide, so to speak. He put the hand out to tell the aide to, 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 
to not interrupt and to let him answer the question. And it was just such an odd display. You don't normally do that when you serve a president or when you serve a public office holder. You don't you you don't cut off the questioning mid question like that. And you don't stop and try you don't stop your principal from speaking, which is an embarrassment. You do it there are other ways you do it, and it's usually through signal and out of earshot and out of eyesight. But also the raises the question, why would you even think you had to do that? It was a simple question, after all. I think it had something to do with division in America, something Joe Biden likes to talk about. But you could see in that moment that there is a nervousness, to put it no higher, of his advisors and trying to keep him as, as, as much as they can from speaking as much as he wants to. Um, you see this in the Oval Office when he's doing sit-downs, particularly with foreign leaders, and he just sits there smiling when people are shouting questions at him. Uh, and they're shouting at him it might be its own problem. But you see it in those instances where he's probably been coached not to say a thing, but he looks like he's just got that silly and scornful smile that just reads like it is such an empty, empty, empty set of eyes that he doesn't really quite know what's going on. You look at him reading those note cards when he's talking to these foreign leaders, and you're back to Hans Christian Andersen and the emperor with no clothes, and we all know it. I mean, that's the thing. We all know it. Democrats know it as much as Republicans know it, and you have to think that the White House advisors will know it. The question then becomes, when's the next time they'll put him in front of a microphone after these two statements, 100 people dying from COVID and we cured cancer? But the other question is going to be, when are you going to start seeing resignations? You think you might. You'd think you might have some embarrassment or shame for serving in this farce. You'd think you'd have some um, desire not to be considered part of what some people call this kind of elder abuse. But it's not about him. And it's not about those who work in the either executive office or in the White House. It's not really about any of that, is it? It's really about the country and the world and its lack and absence of leadership. And lack and absence is the right word. It's just merely, which is to say truly absent. It's just, it's a cipher. There's nothing there. There's no leadership. There's no energy. There's no sense of confidence. Who has confidence in this president? His staff probably doesn't. Does anyone in the American, in the, in, in, does anyone in this country have, have, have confidence in him? Do they have any confidence in him whatsoever? And what does that say when you think about your next best or your next bet or your ballast or your backfill is Kamala Harris? These are not unserious times. These are not times where we can afford this kind of thing. And the whole country knows it. I think the media knows it, which is probably why they are playing so part and parcel in offense against the Republicans and against Ron DeSantis and against Donald Trump. And they'll do the same thing to whoever comes up next as a result of either the debates or continued polling 
increases from other candidates who are running in the primary. They're going to do it to them all. Next, you'll start seeing them probably targeting Vivek Ramaswamy and Tim Scott. And I don't know, maybe Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. That's the that's the group that's gotten onto the debate stage thus far. You'll, you'll see them doing it because they, they, they feel they have to do it. They can't cover this White House credibly anymore. And the new rule, as I said in my monologue of investigative journalism, is when there's a Republican in office, you investigate and engage in negative reporting as much as you can on that Republican in office— And when there's a Democrat in office, you investigate as much as you can and engage in negative reporting on the Republicans not in office. That's the journalism we have now. We'll be right back. It's a heck of a note. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy? There's still talk of a recession, the inflation. Of course, we all know bank failures and the stock market's volatility. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like. And there's no loss of principle if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio offered up by our friends at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is based here locally. They encourage you to stop by their offices on the 101 in Scottsdale Road. I've been there. And you won't get a sales pitch. And no one's going to ask you to sign a thing. But when you do meet with the team at Y-Refi, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. And you will as well. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to a ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call eight 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 refi thirty four. You know what I haven't said much about? I haven't, um, I haven't said much about uh, "Try That in a Small Town," the song by Jason Aldean that's gotten so much. Uh, pushback and criticism. Today is an interesting little phenomenon. A news story was read over the air on a report um, saying Sheryl Crow, singer Sheryl Crow, blasts Jason Aldean's song, Try That in a Small Town. But it didn't say the musician Sheryl Crow. It said the country singer Sheryl Crow blasts Jason Aldean. Now, is Sheryl Crow a country singer? All I want to do is have some fun. Soak up the sun if it makes you happy. The first cut is the day. Is she known as a country music singer? She is not primarily known as a country music singer, which is my point. And the little sleight of hand in that reporting, because you know what they can't really find? They can't really find a country music singer who probably, I don't think so, who will slam Jason Aldean. Because this kind of song is traditional and very much in the main vein of traditional country music. The idea that you can't have a song of strong defense and sticking up for American and small-town values, my God, have they never heard The Fight Inside of Me by Merle Haggard? Or Red, White, and Blue by Toby Keith? What did he say about where he'd put a boot? Come on, folks. Are we men anymore? Can we have men and manly virtues anymore in this country? Can we have country music? Used to be hard America, too. Did soft America ruin country music, too? 
Hope not. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.